0: And so stroke was being thrown around between his sister and
1: whatnot. But there was the nurse, it was a male nurse, and he was all tatted up. And his name was Billy. And he, you know, did all the vitals. And my blood pressure was something like 215 over 100 and something. I mean, it was just off the charts. And he goes, are you on any blood pressure medication? And I said, no, 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 no. I've been working on yoga and meditation. Did not miss a beat Didn't look up at me and he goes, How's that working for you? (laughs) And I thought,
2: Okay, gotcha. Welcome to the Listen for Life podcast with Genevieve Richardson. Genevieve is a speech language pathologist rehabilitating adults with communication challenges after a stroke or due to a neurological impairment. Get equipped with knowledge from experts in the field and professionals you need to know. We'll hear stories and experiences from others who are navigating life with aphasia. So, Put your earphones in and take a walk outside. This isn't just a podcast. This is a community, a resource, and a support system. We're in this together. Do life. Good morning, everybody.
0: Happy Thursday. I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today. But before we get to that, have you ever had one of those days where it just feels like things are not... Clicking. Things aren't quite uh, hitting where they should. Today, for me, again, it's a tech thing. And I used to say I was a tech person, but I'm telling you, I had to pivot this morning. Fighting with the big computer Apple update is not working. So I don't know if that means doom and gloom for my computer or what the deal is. But anyway, we pivoted. We're here on the laptop, and I'm going to bring on my guest today. I'm going to introduce you to Beth. Beth is a stroke survivor, a poet, a photographer, and everything else that she does. Beth and I met through LinkedIn. She saw some of my stuff on there. I saw some of her stuff on there. We Zoomed a couple of weeks ago, and she's here today to tell us what her experience was like having a stroke, recovering from a stroke, and what she does now that lights her up. So without further ado, come on in, Beth. Hello. Good and morning. You, you talked about the tech thing. When I saw the update
1: for Apple update last night, it's like, no, I want to wait until after after the session. So I get yeah. it. You know,
0: I did it on my laptop. So I, I hear you. I was thinking that, but I thought <laughs> I have hours. I have hours to deal yeah. with. I started it last night. But it went smooth on my laptop yesterday. So anyway. Lessons learned. It's a first world problem, right? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Excellent. So Beth, tell us about you. What is your story? Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. My
1: story started back in 2007 when I had a series of ischemic strokes. And it was 49. It was a couple of weeks before my 50th birthday. I was sitting in my, getting my hair done. So I had the unique opportunity to watch myself actually having this strange event. I was telling a story to my stylist and all of a sudden I hear her and it's like it was underwater. It's like she was there and I could hear her. But in my head, I'm thinking, quit, I'm telling you this funny story. Would you be quiet? And then I looked as she's getting more, agitated. We were the only ones there. It was a last day or end of the day appointment. And I look at myself and there's no words coming out. So I'm thinking, this is very strange. I wasn't scared. I was more curious. And there was ever so slight, we ended up calling them the evil snowflakes. There was like white sparkles on my left peripheral vision. And it was discomfort. I, don't, I wouldn't call it a headache. It was more like this pulsing. And I thought, this is really strange. And I've got this goofy grin on my face like, what's happening? And so then I thought, OK, she can't hear me. She's talking. So I went to reach for my pen in my purse, and my hand was a claw. And I thought, oh, this is not good. But stroke still didn't. I mean, stroke was my grandmother's in their, you know, in their 80s that had it. So that wasn't even, I I had no concept of what really was happening. So I couldn't write, sat there for like, I don't, it was probably five minutes, less than five minutes. She can't remember either. She's like, should I call 911? And I'm like shaking my head, no, no, because of course I didn't want to go to the hospital for whatever would happen. So within a couple of minutes, I could talk. I don't know what my balance would have been like because I was sitting in a chair and I was meeting my husband and two of our three daughters around the corner for dinner. And I said, I'll j- Jeff's over there. I'll just walk over there, finish doing my hair. So we did that, sat through dinner, didn't say anything, drove one of my daughters home because we each took a daughter home, which wasn't very far, but I shouldn't have been driving and then got home kids went upstairs. And then I said to my husband, I have to tell you something. And he just like panicked. So he's calling his sister, who's a nurse, and I'm on the phone with Kaiser, who's who is still the my health provider. And they're like, get to the hospital right away. Don't drive. And I'm like, well, I'm not stupid, but I just did drive. So and so that was the first trip. And I'm in there and I'm in my my suit my high heels my favorite high heat marketing outfit and i remember the by then no other episodes it was just something happened and i'm but i knew it was serious enough that i needed to go get checked out i knew that much and so stroke was being thrown around between his sister and whatnot but there was a the nurse it was a male nurse and he was all tatted up and his name was billy And he, you know, did all the vitals. And my blood pressure was something like 215 over 100 and something. I mean, it was just off the charts. And he goes, are you on any blood pressure medication? And I said, no, 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 no. I've been working on yoga and meditation. Did not miss a beat. Didn't look up at me. And he goes, how's that working for you? (laughs) And I thought, okay, gotcha. Good sense of humor. And he goes, are you adverse to taking medication? And I said, no, I'm not an idiot that I've never seen a blood pressure like that. Not that I wanted to be on medication, which is why I was doing the yoga and the, and the meditation instead of medication, but I needed to get on that. So they told me it was a, a, probably a TIA and transitory ischemic stroke. And so told me to take it easy. I had been reading an email before I told the funny story from my boss who was in a new job. It was the end of the quarter. We didn't know it, but the housing crisis was coming. We worked with the television network selling manu- broadcast manufacturing equipment. So we always have a hockey stick where revenue comes at the last minute anyways. So this was November and it was all hands on deck you know, for engineering, marketing, everybody to do everything they could for revenue for sales. And so I'm reading this and I can feel my I mean if I had to go back. That's when my blood pressure started going up like okay, here we go again, you know, with this this revenue drill. So then I sent an email to my boss and said I need to take a couple of weeks off, which was like really bad timing, but there was no it was not how was I going to do both? I was going to take the time off. So unfortunately, for the next 2 weeks, I was in and out of the hospital five or six times. And the evil snowflakes would present themselves like we have a full basket of of Thanksgiving food where we're bringing an expat to come over and have Thanksgiving Thanksgiving dinner. And I get the snowflakes again. And my husband's like freaking out. And I said, well, let's go check the blood pressure machine. So we went and did it and it aired out with me. So I knew it's like we got to go back to the hospital. So we left these, you know, all the groceries there. And checked me out again, did the cats, all that stuff. And it's like, just put me on more medication. You know, it's like, you got to take it easy. It's like, I am taking it easy. I'm walking to the grocery store. You know, I'm not doing any work. But what would end up happening was, and this is where the aphasia came in, which I didn't know what that was called embarrassingly until really a couple years ago. Because when I had these strokes, I was lucky to get back to work and the long tail that I have is not as debilitating as many people have. But then it started presenting itself in terms of my just talking gibberish. And so, and fast forward, they decide, they learned that it was, the, my carotid artery was occluded almost entirely, but because of the circle of Willis, which I didn't know what that was, the body's got a redundancy sending blood to the brain. And so one side was occluded. So everything went on the other side. So it was cognitively harder. The body had to work harder. And so the blood thinner was allowing that clot to basically, or the occlusion to basically open up. It was too far in to do any surgery, which would have really, you know, pissed me off, sorry, upset me if that had happened, because it would have been, I don't like not being in control. And so even being there at the doctors with them giving me all these medications and whatnot, I didn't want to do that, but I didn't didn't know how to fix it unless I listened to them. So it went through, was it a migraine? Is it some other cardiovascular issue? Is it just mismanaged hypertension, which it probably was with the combination of the stress that was happening at work. So when they asked the question about, was this a work-related, you know, accident, it's kind of like, well, it was work-related from a stress perspective, but I didn't, you know, fall down from a forklift or something like that. So it was, uh, took three months off and then came back to work part-time, which was hard. You know, the neurologist is like, you've got to learn to go 75% and make that Mm -hmm. your norm for a long time. Mm. Um, And so the only way we were able to do that was kind of take things off my plate, which was hard because I was a fixer. That was part of my job, which meant you were there to deal with last minute kind of things. So that took some finessing, but work was very very generous in there, allowing me to take the time to heal. The aphasia would, I do remember one of the times back at work, because I didn't want anybody to see me in the hospital. I didn't want anybody visiting. My sisters are all over the country. And mom, as one of my sisters said, threatened to come out. So she said, I'm coming. So mom doesn't come, you know, to help out with the kids and and whatever. And but I remember being in the conference room for one of our I don't remember if it was a, a, a weekly staff meeting or one of our strategic sessions. But there's like, I don't know, a dozen people there. And I'm used to bam, bam, talking fast like I am now. And back then there was just ever so Ever so slight a delay that in a normal conversation, you know, you're thinking somebody's thinking, you know, to get the get Mm -hmm. it out. But in this, you're expected to, you know, kind of if you raise your hand, you're like, you're going to go. And there I remember there's a I don't even remember what the question was, but whatever it was, I've got everybody looking at me and I am petrified that I'm going to say the wrong word. And I'm trying to make it out like, you know, I had this thing. That kept me out for a while, but I'm back, like completely back. There's nothing wrong. I can still do everything I want to except the GM position, which I couldn't apply for because I just had a stroke. And so after that happened, I just found myself saying, I'm just going to send an email afterwards because then I can take all the time I need to, to craft. And so it, And I've never gone back and asked those people directly because I didn't kind of want to know the answer in terms of how Beth seemed during those, I'll say, you know, three to six months after I came back because I didn't want the answer to be, oh, yeah, you were completely different and not like yourself. And to me, that would have watered the seed of you're not going to be able to get back. And I didn't need that negative. I needed to kind of hold on to what I was going to learn from this and how I was going to move forward. So my being very private about it, I did some writing and then fast forward seven years, I retired. And part of that, when I was rethinking, you know, reevaluating, cause you've got all this time when you're not able to get your words out. So you have your conversations in your head. What was, what I wanted to spend more time doing was spending writing. Now, writing and giving up my lucrative career was not really viable. So I made a concerted effort to block out time for me to do writing. So instead of writing the screenplay that, you know, by working with Hollywood, everybody has a screenplay just on my birthdays or holidays. I would do it on a regular, you know, multiple times during the week. And the kids would refer to it as the mysterious script that mom worked on for like, I still am over, you know, a decade or whatnot and poetry I'd done poetry like many people did starting in high school. And poetry seemed such a perfect container, freeform poetry, for what my brain was going through and how fragmented it was and how my speech was fragmented when I could get words out that were the wrong words. And so when there was a poetry chapbook contest, it was freeform. So you could pick any theme you wanted. So I went back and looked at all the poetry I had put something together, used a lot of intuition in terms of which poems I picked, stepped back, and then looked and saw, it's about your strokes. It's like, you don't want to talk about your strokes. And all this poem, all these poems here are about your strokes. So I had wrong word dinner, which was was the night that the aphasia was really bad. And I just sunk into what it felt like in not finding the right word and not being able to keep up and the internal dialogue that goes on. And then I had another poem that was very long, but it was my experience on Thanksgiving morning when I woke up and my arm felt numb, and I didn't know if it was numb because I slept on it or it was numb because I had another event during the night. And so it was Thanksgiving with a side of no thank you, and I divided it into eight. So that really became the spine of the chapbook where these, you know, these dipping into what it was like to go wait for the mri machine and somebody had to be called in because it was thanksgiving and just the, the panic because i think that was the day that i really realized are these ever going to stop you know it was funny at the beginning i kind of it was like speeding and you, you don't get caught right you know the blood pressure was high but you didn't get caught and then i got caught but i got a, a warning ticket. You know, and then I came back and I kept getting these tickets. And then I just wondered, was I, is this just going to be it? Cause they really don't know what's wrong with me. And they keep giving, putting these meds on me and it doesn't seem to be working. So that was probably the lowest point. And so I did the book, and I won the contest, which was great. And then, so it's, I, know. I don't. hold that up. Transition thunderstorms. And uh, what was, delightful about that was a couple of things i loved thunderstorms growing up in the midwest and the title transition thunderstorms it's like the thunderstorms in my head in terms of what my brain was doing and so it was kind of an ode to my upbringing because there's some you know there's some non-stroke poems in here uh, Mm -hmm. with the thunderstorms in my head but the the poetry was mostly about the strokes And then when you've got the chat book, it's like, okay, you didn't want to talk about your strokes, but guess what? You're going to have to do readings and you're going to have to talk about your strokes. So I figured maybe it just, I needed, the universe was telling me that I needed time to process what really happened and be on the other side of it and to write about it, you know, long after, and then really reflect on how the resilience that I had in getting through the strokes was an important piece of who I am. And as you learn in writing, or are reminded again and again, the past is in the present in terms of the decisions you make. So as I'm working on a memoir, which is about totally, dif- not, a, not about the strokes, but it's about moving historic mansion, I, the feedback keeps coming from my the beta readers was is they want to see more of me in it, not just the story, which is this crazy story. And, but I don't want to talk about the strokes and yet the strokes are part of the reason that I jumped on doing this crazy thing because I was trying to prove I was back in the game. And so this was a very risky financial personal project, a perfect way, you know, for me to kind of be back in the game. So the, when I had the chapbook, then I was talking about the strokes. And so I thought I started a podcast where I've always been interested in thoughts and consciousness and entanglement. And you, you think of, you know, because of, I was interested in that before the strokes, but the strokes, when I look back, I spend a lot of time kind of with my thoughts. And you can't get a thought out. So where does the thought inside your head then become out? And consciousness, it's like, where does my consciousness and in somebody else's, you know, and how we all influence each other. So doing the podcast that I do, it's not just about people who create us who've had some brain event, but I want to understand what their relationship was with their thoughts before, to the extent that they knew what their creative process and were familiar or aware of it enough. And then if they can, describe what it was like during whatever brain injury event they had and then how that has changed yeah. afterwards. And is it just an observations changed or is the thought process? Cause certainly there's cognitive hiccups that happen, you know, at different, some temporary, some more temporary. And so that's been fascinating to talk to, you know, writers and musicians about their experience. And then I also started a writing group and The writing group, during COVID, obviously workshop stopped. And there was a, there's a woman, Natalie Goldberg, for anybody who's read Writing Down the Bones. She, which I, interestingly, one of the poems that's in here, which I didn't remember even writing, is this crazy riff off of what an exercise she had. And I had been looking at my journals and kind of rediscovered that. And then up popped in my email about this, intensive that she was doing. And normally she does workshops where you go for a week or a weekend. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't done that. She's down in Tucson. But because of COVID, she wasn't able to do that. So her her peeps basically really coerced her into doing if people wanted to experience the workshop, we don't know how long COVID's going. And so why don't you do it over Zoom? And she hates tech <laughs> she would talk to the camera's like, is anybody there? It was really cute but there were like a thousand people from all over the world who were on these
0: wow.
1: workshop sessions that's when breakout groups you know were brand yeah. new and you'd get cut off and have to you know come in but what i discovered with her she has a, a writing technique that's called a priori which means it's a latin or greek which is before writing or practice writing and mm-hmm she talked about how musicians practice their scales, painters work on the palettes that they're going to use. And so writers we're all kind of working on a draft or forward, but we don't think of practice writing. And there was the artist's way in terms of journaling in the morning so you could get your, you know, blah out so that then you could focus on your writing, you know, kind of get all the mental chatter going. But with this, she uses prompts, although she likes the term topic because you can come back to them over and over again, and topics seem too contained, but everybody relates to prompts. And so I do these prompts, but because of the neuro fatigue that often affects many people who've had a stroke or brain injury, they're only three-minute prompts. And so we come together as a group over Zoom once a month, and then I do, we, kinda, we do a three-minute kind of settling and then we do three prompts, 3 minutes, and then after that people can read them aloud if they would like. Don't have to, but Natalie's her the the benefit of the a priori writing which to me really resonated for somebody who's trying to tap into what they're feeling and thinking as they're going through this journey is that there 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 are rules of this, which is that you are quieting down the editor by longhand is preferred, although there are some people who can't write who are in the group who have to type. Mm-hmm. But the, the preference is to try it longhand. And you just keep going forward. So you don't cross off because that gives your brain's editor permission to come in and edit. And you're really trying to write stuff down before that, you know, that editor wakes up and it's just saying you're, you can come back and look at this afterwards when I reread it and correct it, but right now, so you just go forward and there's no right or wrong. It's not about good writing. It's just about getting whatever the prompt, kind of the first thing that comes to mind and you go off. And if you if you pause, like you don't know what you're going to write next, you just repeat the prompt and then pick up again. And three minutes is not a long time, but mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing how... It's enough. Most of the people say at the beginning when they came, you know, the first prompt, they're, they're apprehensive about, am I going to read this out loud? You know, so the editor kind of comes in in terms of, but if I have to read it out loud, but then they fall into the Zen of, you know, just kind of going through the process and they can choose if they're going to read and which one they're going to read. So that kind of takes some of the self-consciousness out. But the, Natalie also talks about how when you read out loud, you are listening to, you're giving voice to what you're thinking, and that is another level of validation of what you're experiencing. And I got to say, she, she encourages people to leave things for at least two weeks before you go back and reread them. She talks about letting the, the blood dry because whatever you're writing about, you know, maybe sensitive or whatever. But I found that I go back and reread it right after just in case I can't read my writing. And then I'll go and put in parentheses so I, when I go back later that I can actually remember what I wrote there. But I am surprised virtually every time I go back. And even though you've got that, that editor kind of quieted down it still creeps in sometimes and it's like, I know you're there, but I'm just gonna do this writing. I'm amazed when I come back and it's, it's like, I didn't know it was gonna go there. Or there's that phrase that, I don't know that I would have gotten that phrase, doing it kind of, okay, now we're gonna sit down and you know right. document what we've gone through. So I've just found personally, and with the people that have taken participated in the writing group, it's just been a nice little refreshing break and yet, there are these little zaps of insight that come when people—you don't have to expect it. It just kind of happens yeah. that you have these nice, delightful, juicy tidbits that I don't know how you'd get to a different way. So I'm sure painting could do it, or collage could do it. But for me, since I write, the writing has been very
0: beneficial for me. I've I've written okay, so you got to see. It. <laughs> and my and my thing about writing—I love. Colors. colors yes <laughs> i just yes. got my my most recent pack you know from amazon and my husband's like how many do you need i said <laughs> as many as i want because i burn through these things like it's water but i i'm beth i'm and this is just an extension of when you and i had our first mm-hmm. zoom right i'm just so blown away with your insight Mm -hmm. There's just so many good things here. I mean, I'm going to have to go back and look at my (laughs) own notes. And also when I do the show notes here, Mm -hmm. the beauty of when this episode turns into a podcast, I'm using a brand new platform that, that does transcription. Oh, great. And it does it really well, better than my original program. So I'm super excited that when this episode gets onto my new website, the podcast. People are going to be able to see the transcription. Okay. Plus, I'm going to add good things in there like your book and your website. Thanks. And so a, a couple of things. Uh, mm-hmm. Wow, there's just so many things that I wrote down. <laughs> I love this prompt, this prompt mm. thing. I love number one, you talked about neuro fatigue and neuro yes. fatigue is real. I see it constantly with my clients. It's going to be a whole other topic I got to get into one of these days. But I love how you talk about quieting down the editor Mm -hmm. because when I'm working with someone with aphasia, so many don't say what they're thinking because they're trying to edit it in right. their head they're they're testing it out cuz they don't want it to come out wrong some of my mm-hmm. folks that I work with are perfectionists and you know we address that i'm a recovering mm-hmm. perfectionist as you all are seeing on my my tech side you know but when you get to that editor that perfectionistic quality i'm not sure if that's the right word i want to use It's stifling. It is. It holds you back. And I don't want that when I'm in doing direct treatment with someone, I got to get them to let all that go and just say what you're thinking. Because if you say what you're thinking, then we can deal with it. We can see, is it the words that are out of order? Is it the wrong word? Is it the wrong intention? Whatever the case may be so that we can address it. So So I can relate with what you're talking about in writing and how you are coaching the folks that are in your writing group and get rid of that editor, come back to it later. I also like the part where you said, come back and fill in the little blanks, you know, because when you're writing, right, sometimes your brain is faster than your hand and you miss some words. Mm -hmm. So talk a little more about your own personal process, if you would, with your writing. With my writing?
1: I... Natalie, this workshop was for writers, and she, but the technique, I think, can be used whether you're a writer or not, whether you journal or not. There are several things that that she, the reason she promoted this type of a priority, right, as a, as a daily ritual, which I've done almost every day since I took that class in early 20, I think, I think it was early 2020, might have been twenty. Wow. So, I've got lots of and I used to do the 10 minute and it would go off on different pages like, no, I just do one page so I don't have to worry about a timer, you know, just fill that one page. But she said that for many writers, it takes a while for you to find your voice. And to find your voice, and this is where I say it doesn't have to be just for writers, it can be for women, it can be for people who are, you know, have had a neurological or some event where they don't really know what's going on and they don't know how to describe it. I know for a long time, but even before the stroke, when I my husband, then boyfriend, you know, would say, What do you want or how are you feeling? And it's like I didn't I didn't know how to ask that because you were trained to be looking at everybody else. And so with my stroke strokes, I really had to make mom me the project. And so all that spreadsheet color-coded stuff came out as I did all my own research and, and whatnot. But the the trying to be able to listen to you, to me, is asking the right questions, which sometimes you got to come in sideways, because there's a part of you that's trying to be whatever, perfectionist, really strong, you don't want to admit to yourself that whatever it is, and the quiet of your notebook, which you can burn it when you're done if you want to, uh, just gives you... If you get in the habit of doing it, there, she actually has in her book, she talks about list the 10 things that you would never tell anybody. And she goes, write about all of them and then go burn it. But if you don't get it out, it's always there and is percolating and gaining energy, whether you like it or not. And so that was an, that was one of her techniques, which I did. And it was funny because as I'd be writing, I literally would be paying attention to who was in the house. Like somebody was going to come and read over my shoulder. And my journals, there are some pages where it's like, do I really want my kids, you know, to find this after I'm gone? Or do I really want my husband to see this, you know, when it's so raw? And so... Marking those and knowing you can destroy them beforehand Mm -hmm. is fine. But the energy release or reconfiguration of taking those thoughts and the mechanics of putting it on the page, whether your long hand is preferred because of the brain, you know, hand connection or writing it, just getting that stuff down as a way to listen to yourself, to give yourself, you know, to, to value what you're saying is important is an is a important piece, I think, for recovery. But I just say in life, you know, in life in general.
0: Yes. So I, that's yeah. your
1: question. My, so my routine is morning during coffee. I do one of the pages. And it's cute because that's my husband's next to me. we both had coffee because we're, t- we're both retired, right, before we do our exercise and stuff. And so he's reading the news. And so he's populating you know, news articles. And at the beginning, I when I was taking these this class, I would listen to him and I thought, no, I'd say, like, I'm just 10 minutes. I'm just 10 minutes. So I'll sit here. And so then I got to the point where he'd start saying something and he'd go, oh, I'm sorry. That's right. I forgot. Oh, I'm sorry. So now he's really good. You know, when he sees me writing the book, he kind of gives me that space because I like, I mean, I like the routine of us being together. So I do that every morning. And then I do a monthly newsletter and I found myself I do research. So this month's newsletter is going to be on improvisation and how does the brain improvise and fascinating as the universe kind of has things happen is the person that I interviewed for the, the podcast this month, which I talk about in the newsletter is a musician and he's a jazz musician. And so there's jazz improvisation and there's comedy improvisation. She's going to be for next month. And so looking at improv and how that can help in life, because the number one rule is, and yes, and, you never say no. And so that was one, but the the science part of it fascinated me because apparently what happens in jazz musicians is that, because they were the first ones that neurologists were looking at, is the part of the brain that is the traffic cop, the editor traffic cop, and then the other part of the brain likes to play. And what happens by being in the present moment, when you're doing jazz improv, and they've done fMRI tests, Mm -hmm. is the brain lights up on the creative, and the the traffic cop gets quiet.
2: Mm. And
1: so the the gentleman, Mike Keefe, who I interviewed this month, who's a friend, He is the jazz musician, and he talks about how the part of his brain that is the impulse control was damaged. And so that's awful with road rage. But I said, for your your music, do you notice a difference in your being able to more easily shift into the jazz improvisation because the editor in your case is turned down, uh, but he's just getting his dexterity back. So he's relearning his instruments. So I encouraged him to, you know, when he records next time to just pay attention. So I'm really curious on how for him personally, especially because that part of the brain was shut down on purpose or by accident, mm-hmm. whatever um, right. how that might affect it. So.
0: Fascinating.
1: So did I answer your question?
0: (laughs) You did. You did. And you (laughs) gave me like a hundred more that I'm not going to be, I I can't, I'm not gonna be able to process all those. I, this whole thing about writing stuff down. I love the prompt that Natalie gave you about the 10 things you would never tell anyone. Mm -hmm. I think about the spouses of my Mm -hmm. patients and I think about what a tough road they have also. Yes. The person going through the stroke, having the aphasia, not being able to communicate, but now all the new roles and responsibilities of the person that loves them. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And the spouses uh, get just as isolated as someone with aphasia Mm -hmm. and they don't know how to let it out. And I know for myself personally, And I don't know how it ever came to me, but at a couple of challenging parts of my life, I remember sitting down and writing, like obsessively writing and writing till I can't write anymore. Mm -hmm. I never even looked at it again. I was able to tear it up, throw it away. I don't think I burned it, but but I was able to destroy it. But that allowed me to release it. And yes. me, what, how are you
1: going to release it? You talk to somebody else, but if it's private and you don't want to, right. writing gives you a way to listen to yourself. And it's kind of, you're having a two-way conversation, but mm-hmm. it allows you you know, to listen to yourself. So.
0: And you said the word validation, because mm-hmm. what we're thinking is valid. I mean, that's what we're experiencing. It's based on our memories and our experience. And we got to not be so critical. We got to not be so judgy. Right. One of the
1: other things that Natalie did, you know, in, in art, there's positive and negative space. So not Mm -hmm. optimist and and negative person or pessimist, but the negative space. So some of her early prompts, first prompts that she'd use is what do I see out my window? So it's trying to get you in the present moment and to talk, to use all your senses or as many as you can and talk about what's out your window. And you'll, you know, there'll be, I don't know, a garbage truck goes by and all of a sudden you're talking about some childhood memory about some, you know, garbage or the sound or something. And you just follow, you just follow, it's a stream of consciousness. You just follow it. And so if there's something that's burning inside your subconscious and you don't think it has a connection with the prompt, it's amazing how just participating in the game stuff comes out and the other thing she did is she said she'd use the negative what's not what i can't see out my window so i remember the first time i did that my mom was still alive but i said i can't see my mom you know sitting in her barker lounger and i can't see whether the rented daughter has come to get her i can't see her so it was all this what i couldn't see but all of a sudden my mom was very present and i wasn't thinking about her at all but that's what, the, that's what the prompt triggered. And I asked the writing group if people wanted to participate with, you know, to submit some prompt ideas. And they came back and said, no, we like not knowing what it's going to be. So okay. that, you know, it's a little writing improv to, you know, kind of riff off of that. And so it's just a fun exercise. And then they go off with their day. And some of them are writers. And some of them are just processing stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we'll pick, you know, everybody... So far, everybody's picked something to read, but I, you know, if they really, if they get some time where we hit a nerve, you know, that's why they, there's three prompts. So pick one of them. So invariably one of them, they feel comfortable in reading or they're not comfortable, but they hear somebody else and it's, you know, it's okay, but it's not great writing. Mm-hmm. You know, you just, you, the other thing she has you do is to be an active listener. So don't take notes when somebody's writing, which is hard with, with brain cognition recovery, because it's hard to keep things in, you know, Mm -hmm. so I'm a little looser on that. But it's like, if there's a phrase that just really gets you, you know, evoke something in you just share that with the person. So it's, it's not, it's trying to have people read and not have judgment around it. It's it's not a writing critique group. It's meant to be a a writing, I don't even know, reflective, it's thought echoes that I call all of these, because, and that came to me when I was trying to figure out, it's like, okay, you want to write this memoir, you need a platform, you need a website, you know, all of that. And so Thought Echoes just came up in one of my brainstorming sessions. Mm -hmm. And that just really, you know, it kind of made me pause. When I wrote that down. Yeah, it it gave me chills. It's like your past self, your current self, your future self. So you've got quantum entanglement and all of that. And, And what echoes are we getting as in thoughts that keep getting repeated that we tell ourselves Likewise, what thoughts are we plant? What thought seeds are we planting now with ourselves or our kids or our, you know, in our relationships that thoughts don't just come and go, you know, they've got, Mm -hmm. I often say, do we have thoughts or do thoughts have us? Mm. No, we we have roots.
0: I mean, they are, they are there. Yeah. 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 So can, who can join your writing group? Anybody who's interested, just
1: reach out to me on the on the website. So if the contact information, if you put that up there, yeah, if anybody is interested and I'll spend, you know, we can do a a Zoom, get to know each other and you can, you know, tell me about, ask any questions or whatnot. The site is a it's a password protected portal. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, they're recorded for the group. Mm-hmm. And then the understanding is if there's anything that you, somebody says during it that you don't want, you let me know and I take that out. But okay. everybody so far has been comfortable because it's just this group, you know, mm-hmm. who can listen to the recording if they miss it or if they want to go back. I give the prompts. So if they want to go back for the prompts, they, they're listed there. But if they want to listen to the session again, then I have the we do it over Zoom with video. So we have a conversation, mm-hmm. but I only record the audio.
0: Gotcha. What is your website, Beth?
1: It's com.
0: Okay. So let's wrap up, but we have a couple comments I wanted to share. Okay. With you You may have seen them on your side. No,
1: I'm putting my glasses on. Oh, so uh, That's fine. I'll
0: read them. I'll read okay. them out. So first one is Stacy is asking, do you still experience unexpected episodes of aphasia at times? That's a good question.
1: And I think when we talked in the zoom session and, Once I started interacting with people who are on various stages, you know, had a stroke within the last couple of years, and it's been 10 or 15 years, that's how I learned about the neurofatigue. Physicians told me that. Is that, is it age or is it, you know, so I will find, and it's usually in a stressful, in a more stressful situation where the end of my, the last couple words in my sentence, they're in my head and they don't kind of get out. I've Hmm. always been a fast talker. And so I don't finish my sentences all the time. So how much of that was stroke? How much of that is my personality? But I notice that there are times and usually when it's people looking at you, you know, you're telling a story and everybody's looking at you. I think that harkens back to that conference room, you know, with everybody looking at me and I have to be very purposeful. And so I try to talk a little slower, which gives that those last couple words in the, in the chapbook, I, I liken it to kids at camp. You know, you've got a line of kids at camp and somebody at the front of the line stops and all the other kids fall over them. It, that's like, it, that's how it was the night I was, my daughters were pointing to things and I was saying the wrong word. It's like the wrong, mm-hmm. wrong word dinner, you know, was coming. Wrong yeah. word dinner. I love wrong that. word dinner. And when I write, there's still my handwriting used to be pretty neat And so I've just had to get over that, even with all the practicing, because we don't write a lot. That's the time I write is when I do my journaling. And my O's and E's Mm
0: -hmm. lapse.
1: So I have to really make a a concerted effort not to have them collapse. But I would say that it's it's like the tail end. Sometimes I try to train myself in terms of, okay, there's an end of a sentence. So just think of the next couple of words, and then you'll be able to get through all the words. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how much of that is age. How much of it is the aphasia that has a long tail? And it's probably a combination of both. But generally speaking, when I mentioned it to my husband, you know, he's kind of like, no, you don't speak any different. It's like, well, you don't know what's going on up here. Right, right. So, and when I picked the wrong word, and that's kind of the joke, mom will say the wrong word. And that used to hurt a lot because it's like, you have no idea where that's coming from, but I'm not going to tell you. So I just kind of took the hurt and would laugh with them. Yeah. And I think I told... One of my kids, when we were out for coffee, you know, decade later, that sometimes when I say a wrong word, it it may not be just a, I mean, it is a brain fart in one hand, but it, it, it might be a lingering thing. So if you could just be a little gentle in your,
0: (laughs) right. Mom's doing your feedback, right? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Love the kids. So we have a comment from Ted. I have found that my aphasia has actually made me very creative in expressing myself. I like That's that. Great. That's great. Neat. Good Ted. Yeah. And Vicki has a question. Do you know what seems to trigger your aphasia? Well, it sounds like stress is. One- I think
1: stress if I'm tired, if I'm in a new situation, I think it's, it's basically stress and that could come from a bunch of different, not having enough sleep, you yeah. know, being in a, you know, I don't know, in in a new environment or something like that Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's not as if I can't there'll be long pauses and I remember my mom at the end she was 91 when she died and she had a series of strokes and once the chapbook came out and she read all of it and whatnot and she'd talk about how her memory was I mean she's 91 her memory was getting worse and that trying to find the right word and she's like I know nobody like you understands that And hers is age and the stroke that she had, you know, the Mm -hmm. strokes that she had towards the end. So it is frustrating when you, you know, it's like trying to think of somebody's name, an actor's name. It's kind of in that grocery aisle. So it's here. And And it's like,
0: you know, it's it's right there. Like you can see them, you can describe them if you can name the movie. Right, right. So, and I think if I'm, If I chill, it's like, okay, you can't think of
1: that name. And I try to imagine it more like I can't think of the actress's name, which everybody experiences, then I, it doesn't add to the stress, which makes it worse. So taking a deep breath and acknowledging that you're having a hard time finding the word
0: and letting it go. (laughs) That's good advice for those who haven't had a stroke or aphasia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So we have one more here that I wanted to pop up on the screen. Do loud places trigger it? Knowing you have to be forceful with your words to be heard, but nervous the wrong word will mm-hmm. shout out. Wow. That's
1: I'd say that that was more that was more apparent during the early months of my recovery. I mm-hmm. remember being at a restaurant with my sisters and You're saying, you know, you had to talk a little more. And so I do remember, boy, I I haven't thought of that in over a decade. I do remember being more selective. And I think I I didn't chatter as much like I normally do because the chatter may go. You know, I was more prescriptive in what I chose to talk about in a group. It'd be different when I was talking one-on-one because there'd be a little bit more stress like everybody's looking at you. Um, But, yeah, a lot of inputs. One of the things that I still am trying to find out the research on is my sister, one of my sisters was getting her PhD, and she told me about the Symphony of Brainwaves, which was curated by Dr. Andrew Wheels. And it's about an hour, a little over an hour, I think, worth of classical music and toning for healing. Mm-hmm. And you need to have you need to have headphones in because of the toning piece of it. But I listened to that religiously in the hospital. And I think as my brain was relaxing and healing, I i mean, it's anecdotal, but I, I and I don't have a, I did it and I didn't do it. Right. But I cannot imagine that that didn't have a positive impact on the neuroplasticity with what was going on. Mm-hmm. So it's very calming music. I still like loud music and going to loud places, but if I'm tired and if you're trying to have a conversation that's more stressful. So then, yeah, I'd say that the likelihood of the aphasia character showing up, you know, saying it's my turn, you know, you're not going to be able to get out what you want to say is more
0: likely to show up. Right. We have one more. You got time for one more I do. I do. All right. Do you wish you would have told your family or friends that laughing at your difficulty Mm retreating words hurt?
1: I think by the time I was honest with myself that it did hurt, that's when I started telling them. I think just like I was in denial that I had these strokes that it was going to be debilitating, didn't want to go there. So I wasn't going to, I was trying to do everything I could to get, you know, walk. I couldn't walk, talk, write put my makeup on. I still remember when my primary came in and I was all excited because I got my eye makeup on. I said, I got my eye makeup on. And he's like, that's a good thing. I said, I haven't been able to. Yes, it was a good thing. So all those things I kind of did quiet. My husband saw it, but he was taking care of, you know, two kids in high school and one in college and the businesses that we had and, you know, yeah. trying to take the, all the rest of the stuff. So sure. I was spending a lot of time about my experience. His support was giving me space so that I could focus on me while he focused on everything else. But when I did tell them, when I decided that, why am I feeling such a a cringe and then spent more time with why I was feeling that way and was able to see that I felt like I was being made fun of and that it might not just be like trying to find an actor's name that might be a little bit more, but I didn't want to play the stroke card. You know, it's like, you don't want to play right. the feminist card, you know, you want to So right. I did end up with my husband and then with all three of my kids, I think privately, when we'd go to coffee with mom, it did say something. So, but yes, had I done that earlier, had I been aware of it earlier and done that earlier, I think they would have, when it happened at a party with family or friends, they would have pivoted. I mean, they wouldn't have yes. called it out. They would have pivoted.
0: You yes. Know? So. So advocacy, I, I think of it advocacy, as advocacy yes. and something I teach early. And yeah. what's interesting is you would think that we would all have the sense of self preservation, but like you said, we don't want to play the card. Yeah. So it's a it's a yeah. it's an art and a science trying to figure out how do you advocate for yourself, let people know what you're going through, but right. not be a victim person. Right. So right. Right. yeah, it's a it's a fine line. It's a balance. Beth, thank you for your candid story. Oh, this was, was, again, I have so many notes. I'm sure I'll have plenty more questions. I'm sure we'll have more conversations. I want to check out your podcast. How do we find your podcast? On the
1: website. So on the the newsletter, the podcast, the blog, and the writing groups there. But if you try to get in, it's got password protected, but my contact information is there. So any questions you have, reach out. And I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. So those are other two other
0: ways to get a hold of me. Love it. Thank okay. you, Beth, so much. Thank you. If you'll just hold on, we'll say goodbye to everybody. Thank you all for listening. This was a fabulous interview. I hope you learned as much as I did from Beth. And we will catch you all next time.
2: Thanks for tuning in to the Listen for Life podcast. We hope you feel empowered and supported. Head over to listenforlifepodcast.com to see the show notes with links and information from today's episode. Do you have a topic, a resource to share, or a guest recommendation? Inquiring minds want to know. Let us know in the comments section.